Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, okay, ladies, now let's get information about Beyonce's place in the canon of black feminism. Everyone, no matter what your identity is, needs to read black feminist literature. And then Beyonce's Lemonade featured a Nigerian body painter who tapped into the traditions of the Yoruba. We'll talk to a local body painter in advance of the sixth annual Body Painting Day. I mean, have you ever looked at a naked woman in a wheelchair? Who's ever looked at a naked woman in a wheelchair? But there she is, being turned into the work of art that she already knows she is. Desperate housewives of the 19th century novel, deconstructing Hogwarts, tree climbing. These are just a smattering of actual college courses offered to today's undergraduates who will be well prepared to enter the workforce as magical, semiotically fluent arborists. But you may ask, will they be able to intelligently parse the lyrics of Beyonce? If they took our next guest's course, the answer is yes. Kevin Allred taught a class called Politicizing Beyonce for years. He has a new book out based on the course called Ain't I a Diva? Beyonce and the Power of Pop Culture Pedagogy. And we're happy it brings him to Woman to BK. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So talk to me about the inception of this course, Politicizing Beyonce. You started teaching it in 2010. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, 2010. I had been a Beyonce fan, as many people are, obviously. obviously, and always into pop culture and my studies have a background in American studies and women's and gender studies. So, you know, I was always searching for just fun ways to bring pop culture into the classroom. Um, I read an article by Daphne Brooks, which is the first thing I'd ever read. It was an, in The Nation, um, an album review of B-Day, arguing that Beyonce was kind of responding to current events politically. And um, at the time, Hurricane Katrina had just hit the year before B-Day came out. And she made this really um, exciting, I found, uh, analysis of it. And I took that and kind of wanted to run with it, assign that article in the classroom when I was teaching other things. And it always produced just like really engaging, fun conversations and debates. And so when I got the chance to um, de design my own uh, special topics course, I was like, why not just pair a Beyonce song with a different reading all by black women kind of throughout history and have conversations with the students about where's Beyonce's place? Can we analyze her lyrics politically? Can we place her in this same trajectory with all these other black women activists throughout time? And I went and put it together and kind of snuck in there. The students, the first day, didn't even know we were, it was just a special topics class. They didn't know it was all about Beyonce. Oh, really? So they just yeah. signed up because they wanted to take a class from you, not because they were... Or just, you know, like the general uh, education requirements. They needed three credits of women's studies <laughs> to get um, whatever degree. Surprise! And, yeah, surprise. <laughs> One student threw a pen at me that as <laughs> when I said, okay, guess what the special topic is? They're like, we don't know. I said, um, Beyonce, we're going to talk about Beyonce all semester. I hope it was throwing a pen out of excitement, excitement, excitement. And glee. yeah it okay. was not it was not a violent <laughs> otherwise pen. leave this class right. immediately <laughs> it was not a violent pen throwing um and i docked it and it hit me so <laughs> that was the first time and then kind of um 
you know, articles got written about it uh, after 2010. And so then it got brought back over and over because people were asking for it. So this isn't like a historical biographical look Hmm. at Beyonce, the person. This is sort of an opportunity to read the works of black feminist writers through the lens of Beyonce. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, one of the things I tell everyone on the first day is like, we're not looking at her as a person. We don't know the things that are going on in her private life. She is inscrutable. How could we know anything? Right. Of any celebrity, really, she's the one that guards her privacy so carefully. And so, you know, what can we read politically as a stand-in for other things that are happening in the world? Not, Not gossip about, you know, what happened in the elevator with Solange and Jay-Z and all of that. I'm more interested in what does it represent. Like when you look at any kind of art, you know, people take a class on Shakespeare. What do these characters represent? How can we apply it to this or that? Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I want to do with Beyonce. What does it say about the society and the time period in which it was written? Yes. Um, Do you get any pushback or raised eyebrows about your being a white (laughs) man teaching a class about Beyonce? I mean, this is sort of blown up and you're kind of like the world's foremost Beyonce (laughs) academic at this point. I don't know if that's true. I, to me, it's like an intro to feminism class using Beyonce and black women's texts rather than, you know, maybe the white texts that you usually read or all of that. And so my position is really kind of strange in that because I I recognize like I typically I'm have all these privileges. I don't know if I'm the person that um, it makes sense to be doing this. Uh, But I think there's still kind of a an aspect of that that I can use to introduce and then kind of pass students off to the next level. Like, now we go and read all of these texts. It's not my interpretation of the texts. It's an introduction so that they can go learn more from black women themselves by reading those texts, by listening to Beyonce. Also, I just try and facilitate conversations. Rather, I don't lecture about what this lyric is. We watch a video and then we start chatting about, what did you see? What did you see? Okay, should we argue? Is there an argument here? Is there a debate over what was happening? How might this piece by Angela Davis bring up a similar theme that this video brings up? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. So I'm always trying to check myself, my own position in that, which is hard. And I might not do it correctly all the time, but I try really hard um, to do that. Mm -hmm. I imagine as opposed to like, I don't know, a class on 17th century French (laughs) literature, like this must have been a very dynamic course that you had to keep up with Beyonce. And like every one of Beyonce's years is like nine normal human years. Right. Um, So how much did you find the course evolving and changing with Beyonce over time? You know, in 2010, when I started, Beyonce hadn't made these major, you know, self-titled hadn't come out. She hadn't said the word feminist. Lemonade... We don't know about lemonade yet. Right. So, oh, what uh, a what a different time! <laughs> right? We've come such a long way, and by we, I mean Beyonce, of course, and yeah. us along with her. Yeah, so much has changed in those years, and so it was so interesting to see, and kind of at the same time think about what might she do next. Try and anticipate it, and leave spaces open to fill them in with whatever comes mm-hmm. next. Um, so, take us back to 2010. What was happening in the Beyonce verse at that time? Well, 2010 is kind of like, it's kind of a lull in the Beyonce universe because her three solo albums were out. So um, I Am Sasha Fierce had come out in 2008 and four was about to come out, but we didn't know that yet. Uh, (laughs) So it was a lot less material to work with. I didn't use her first solo album 
because it felt like she didn't have as much control over that one. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to, looking at her as an artist, focus the aspect of um, her control and intent that she was making these really meticulous pieces with layers and visuals. The visuals were a huge part of what we're looking at, not just lyrics. So what visual images is she producing? And of course, now she's become the foremost visual, uh, I don't know, storyteller. Um, so it was a moment, maybe like a moment in transition with Beyonce. It was uh, an interesting time because then she comes up. We're saying, I'm saying at that point, you know, Beyonce is a feminist. We should take her as a feminist. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, Beyonce is like sampling Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie with a speech on feminism. And it's like, whoa, whoa, there was, <laughs> we, we, we were saying that. We were saying that. So let's keep going and see right. what, what's happening with her. And she's progressed in these incredible ways, like, we all know. I don't have to yeah. <laughs> gush about. We all know. We all know. Um, I was at a, a Ford Foundation event honoring Gloria Steinem. Mm. This must have been like 2013 maybe. Mm -hmm. And I overheard a woman of a certain age talking to Gloria and she was like, you know, anyone can call themselves a feminist these days. She's like, Beyonce says she's a feminist. Uh. And much to her credit, Gloria Steinem was like, well, if Beyonce says she's a feminist, She's, she's a, a feminist, feminist. <laughs> bitch. She didn't say the bitch part, right. but it was implied. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, this sample on, um, what is it, Flawless? Flawless, yeah, Flawless. Of Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie. Uh, do you read, I mean, how do you, is the, is the pairing for that just the actual text? And as far as I know, I believe that's the only Adichie sampling on a pop track that I can think of. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, well, talk to me about some of the pairings that you make with the songs and black feminist writers. Yeah, well, that one in particular, I usually, so none of the readings meant are about Beyonce, there, right. like we said. Um, like I said, there was, it's all about these other themes. And so that one was a, uh, an interesting one because she's actually sampling this, uh, this black feminist literature and, or a speech at the time. She's since put it out as like an essay form mm -hmm. book. Uh, so I did have them watch the speech too, because then you can think about, well, how did Beyonce work with this? How did she cut it and rearrange parts of it? Because of course it comes from TED Talk that she's giving and Beyonce's chosen very strategic pieces of it. Sure. So we can talk about that, you know, but I could also assign pieces by like Roxane Gay and bad fe the idea of bad feminist and mm -hmm. bad feminism and things like that. And to draw out themes of what does feminism mean for Beyonce? Is it the same idea you have of feminism or anyone else has about what it means to be a feminist? What does feminism mean to <laughs> Beyonce and how have you seen that change over time? I think like she says, the, 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 the definition of feminism in the song or feminist in the song is like a standard dictionary definition um, that, that Adichie reads in, uh, in the speech. But I think Beyonce infuses a lot of she highlights intersectionality and she highlights race and gender and class and sexuality and all of these things, which black feminists over time have always done, of course. So I think she is learning as she goes, one thing. Like, it's not perfect. Every. Uh, I mean, who can forget girls who run the world, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, Beyonce, like, <laughs> videos are kind of perfect, but right. at the same time, her her theoretical analysis of feminism isn't right. always necessarily perfect, but she, I think she learns. And as we've seen, she incorporates criticism of her, her work into the next piece that comes mm -hmm. out. And so she's always changing it, right? We have Lemonade coming out, which is this like manifesto epic tale of 
on the personal side, it can be infidelity, but on the political side, we can read it as about, you know, I assign stuff about citizenship and Claudia Rankin and the idea of black women as citizens of America with a broken promise. Like, that's another read of infidelity in a political sense. Mm -hmm. And then she comes out with Homecoming, and it's she's incorporating more of these they're not all black feminists, but these writers, like a black uh, intellectual tradition, uh, into her live concert f- stuff. So she's always like growing and building on what her own feminism, which I think is one of the exciting things, not just growing as an artist, but also growing politically and, and s- still keeping a lot for herself, but giving us all of these things to go and read and go and study and go and think about too. It's been really exciting as a Beyonce fan to watch her personal evolution. And I don't mean this in a condescending way, but to sort of watch her um, embrace intersectionality Mm. and go from the sort of like, you know, confectionary Destiny's Child pop star to somebody who is using these very complex images of like the Black Madonna and, you know, Black Panthers and and Daughters of the Dust in in her work. What do we know about her own personal evolution we can make guesses and certainly with homecoming where she drops all those quotes, you know, she probably has read pieces by them, if not more than just where those quotes come from. And she said about the Adichie quote in, in flawless that she had seen the the YouTube video and it really uh, moved her. It's kind of the same way that she talks about incorporating choreography, like with run the world, she had seen that movement, the dancers on YouTube and they like searched for them and flew them out so they could all learn the choreography. It's kind of the same thing that she does in that way. I think her academic practice mirrors her artistic practice mm-hmm. and like searching out these things and studying. Yeah. One of the key things about Beyonce is that she releases tracks or albums or videos whenever the fuck she wants. Has yeah. this ever really screwed up the <laughs> syllabus? Like, did Lemonade drop in the middle of an academic semester and you were like, oh, God. <laughs> it, I don't believe I was teaching the class when Lemonade dropped, but I had written a whole version of the book that I had like submitted and then Lemonade came out. Oh no. And it was like, <laughs> it was a both an oh no and a like, oh my God, this is so cool. But right. mixed emotions. Sure. It, it rearranges the syllabus all the time. And the book is told like as the most current version of the syllabus was as I wrote it. And Lemonade had moved around in different ways. Now, as as in the book, it's published, so I can't change it. Right. But Lemonade is the first thing that happens, and then it goes back and kind of tries to tease out the same themes from her earlier music. It works in multiple different ways, and that's kind of what I love about her work that I can't necessarily say for the majority of artists, but that there's so many different interpretations. It's not just one thing. You mm-hmm. can you can make a million different stories out of the Beyonce catalog. Right. Um, I want to come back to the book uh, mm. because it just was released. Yeah. Um, but you have been sort of a controversial figure in <laughs> academia, for better or for worse. Right. Um, but I'm curious, like, do you feel like there's a double standard? Do you feel if, if you were teaching a class about you know, uh, Bob Dylan Mm. and what his work tells us about um, American society that people wouldn't have been as angry? (laughs) There would have still been a little bit, but yeah, I would would think so. Mm -hmm. Like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, 
people cite white men thinking that they have this like American experience that teaches everyone about, I mean, it's the same with all literature, all history, this right. white male experience gets to be the universal thing. But right. when you center Beyonce's experience as a black woman, I think you learn a lot more about society. And even still, you can get more, you know, you can search for more intersections than just Beyonce can represent. But I think, yeah, there there would have been less uh, pushback about a course <laughs> that had a white man as the, even a, even a like, musician or cultural figure. Right, right. Yeah. I think so, too. <laughs> um, the book did just come out. Yes. Um, and give us the name. Give us the name again. Ain't I a Diva, Beyonce and the Power of Pop Culture Pedagogy. And people can find this just like in normal bookstores or do yeah. they have to go to like academic bookstores? No, no, no. It should be. It's published with the Feminist Press, mm -hmm. which is kind of a in-between academic and popular press, um, which is perfect because that's exactly what I wanted the book to right. be in between popular and academic. And I wanted it to anyone to be able to read it and understand it without having to, you know, pull out the dictionary and learn new academic terms, but also still learn about all these authors and then kind of leave the seeds for them to go and then read the work by um, all the black women that I cite in the book. Like, just like the syllabus, I only cite black women in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted it to be kind of a little introduction, the, the class in a book form. So you feel like you've taken the class if you read through the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talk about how the syllabus for this class is all, it's exclusively black feminist authors mm -hmm. um, and about how maybe you've gotten some heat for being a, a white man teaching a black feminist course. But do you see a responsibility or what type of responsibility do you see as a white male mm. academic to put these types of texts in front of your students um, and maybe even sort of like, I don't know, sneak them in the back door, get people in with Beyonce, yeah. and then make them read bell hooks? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly the kind of idea I had when I started the class. Um, not that you should need the Beyonce sneaking, but like, you know, for, for college students who have a million things to do that might not otherwise come across these texts. But I think I have a responsibility as a white man with some privileges or, or you know, who had a class to put those, those voices on the syllabus because they're underrepresented and marginalized in so many ways. Everyone, no matter what your identity is, needs to read black feminist literature because you can still advocate a black feminist politics without being a black woman. But once, once the issues that affect black women are addressed, it radiates out and affects others' freedoms versus, you know, dealing with the most privilege and then like working your way down, which is what we've done so far. And it hasn't worked out great for most people. <laughs> It reminds me a little bit of this show that's currently on Broadway called What the Constitution Means to Me. Mm. And it's this one-woman show by a straight, cis, white woman. Mm -hmm. And it's called What the Constitution Means to Me. So you get people going to the show who think that they're like, I don't know, going to get like a, a like funny, lighthearted <laughs> romp by this nice white lady about constitutionality. Yeah. And it actually is about misogyny and cycles mm. of abuse and violence. And it makes me feel like people who go to that are actually the people who need yeah. to hear that message the most. And yeah. they're hearing it from like uh, a, a friendly face. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, if she called it, if it were a one woman show by a black woman and it was called, um, we need to talk about the patriarchy. Like <laughs> no one's going to see <laughs> that show see who it. isn't already, yeah. who, you know, it, progressive. <laughs> yeah. And it sucks that that's the reality, but um, it's also one way you can reach out, reach a certain segment of the audience that might not otherwise be 
open to as much and mm-hmm. then you just kind of gradually show them and it's like yeah okay and then I want to pass people off and say read these books go take a class buy a black woman you know go do all of that it's not like I'm not the replacement for any of that by any means but it's it's just a foot in the door right um I'm curious about what it is about black feminist theorists and thinkers that spoke to you specifically um somebody who is not a black woman right so I'm from Utah originally I grew up Mormon I'm gay you know I was always dealing with these feelings of not fitting in where I was growing up and issues like that, that feeling different from society or cast out from society, or I didn't have the word discriminated against at the time, but those were the things I like gravitated towards in black women's writing, those same issues. I think, you know, you don't have to have the same experience to know, to empathize across those differences, um, which is the thing I love most about Audre Lorde's writing, where she's always trying to get us to talk and connect across differences because the experience might not be the same but the underlying feeling of the experience maybe is something that is the same between everyone they just felt like they represented the world in a truer way than all of the other stuff I was reading and feeling as I grew up so it's kind of an unlikely (laughs) pairing but it's the the books I found in the library and really fell in love with Mm -hmm. and maybe I'll close up by asking is there another pop artist or even just like pop culture figure hmm. who you think deserves a class if you were to put together another, another like special seminar <laughs> would you want to mm. focus on Janelle Monet has a lot of interesting sci-fi this whole storyline that is intense and you can analyze over and over I sure. think sort of like a queer Afrofuturism yeah. vibe yeah of course um she's someone out there and there's other people if I went back in time I would like do another class around Janet Jackson um, because she was my first Beyonce is my like true love but but Janet Jackson was the the first true love yeah (laughs) and they have a lot of similarities anyway so maybe I would just be repeating the course of Janet Jackson's music yeah I think Janelle Monae out of anyone right now I like I like a course from Janet to Janelle colon and then you can you know figure out yeah whatever I'm not good with such well Kevin thank you very much Uh, and we appreciate your time yeah No one seems quite sure when body painting first arose in human history, but it's practiced by cultures around the world, from the Nuba of present-day Sudan, to the Anangu of Central Australia, to the swimsuit models of Sports Illustrated. On July 20th, Brooklyn is playing host to the 6th Annual Body Painting Day, founded by artist Andy Golub, who joins us today. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. And we're also joined by a body painting model and muse, David Pumo. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. And for our podcast listeners, yes, we are all fully nude right now. uh, So be sure to (laughs) tune in next time. Um, So tell me a little bit about Body Painting Day, Andy. It's in its sixth year. What does it entail? Well, we get a large group of uh, people. They're they're models, but they're they're basically everyday people, uh, male and female, ranging from 20 years old to 80 years old, uh, getting full nude in public to become art. And then we get a, a like a huge number of artists to paint them, to 
basically just to uh, bring people together and create human connection and use art to uh, just make the world better. And you mentioned that the theme this year is the purpose of our existence. Do all of the years have themes and can the artist paint whatever they want? Yeah, the, the theme is intentionally very vague. Like, I don't really know how someone would paint something, the purpose of our existence. But I think it's, to me, some people need themes, but to me it's a, a very powerful statement, which is that the artist's voice is necessary in, in our society or in a healthy society. And so I really encourage artists to, you know, use art to contemplate the most basic ideas, which is, you know, what are we trying to do? And, and I think that this is a conversation that um, is probably missing in our society. And what are you trying to do with your chosen form of art? I'm trying to create a dialogue. I'm trying to empower people so that basically people are not being told what they're supposed to think, how they're supposed to feel, what they're supposed to do with their lives, but that it's an open conversation. It seems that more and more, I mean, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, but it seems more and more that we live in a world with a lot of anxiety and a lot of hostility. And I believe very deeply and passionately that Art can be the solution to those things if it's done um, with love and with openness and with creativity and by uh, listening to our inner voice. And what is it about using the human body as a canvas that evokes those feelings for you? Why not just paint, uh, you know, on a on a canvas or on a sheet of paper, for example? Well, I I think that the the level of vulnerability and the level of trust is something that it's it's sort of ironic because what happens when a person exposes their outer skin or their body, it actually reveals their inner spirit. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been, I'm sure you haven't been to any of our events, but we've run many events, and they, they really have, I mean, David could probably speak to it as well, but they have such a, like, a powerful vibe of, of trust and love. It's uh I've really never experienced anything like it before, and it's uh, very uh, inspiring to uh, to be a part of it at all, but especially to be the person who's uh, sort of behind making it. David, how long have you been a model for body painters? This is my fifth year doing it, and I was actually counting the other day. I've done 11 events. And what drew you to it initially? Why did you show up at your first event? You know, I, I have a, my own personal journey with my own body, which started out as, as you know, a pretty awkward, un, unathletic kid, and I later in life became a fitness trainer. I ended up in L.A. where I worked for many people, but key among them Richard Simmons, who kind of, to me, spoke to the same energy that Andy speaks to in, in a world, you know, Los Angeles, the film and television capital of the world, or the most looks-conscious place on earth, where people who were 20, 50, 100, 200 pounds overweight, I worked with people who were 200 pounds overweight and more every single day, wouldn't be caught dead in the gym, had no connection to their own body, and felt very isolated in that whole community because of that, were able to come and feel comfortable and feel understood and meet other people who had been through the same experience and dance in their bright 80s colored leotards because it was the 80s and early sure, 90s sure. and you know walk away from that experience sometimes losing weight but always learning something about themselves and about other people and learning to love themselves in a way that they never had before. I, I was intrigued by it. I knew other people had been involved with it. And I, once I got there and realized, I mean, what do you think of when you think of body painting? You think of Playboy models who were painted like French maids or, or, or leopard prints. Sure, the Sports Illustrated exactly, swimsuit which, issue, which we I referenced. I heard that when you said it at the That's beginning. That's right. But Andy's events are, are 
every age, every race, every shape, every size. I know, I know two, probably more, but I know personally, I'm close to two grandfathers who have grandkids who are retired. Uh, one of whom, by the way, jumps out of uh, uh, airplanes naked. Uh, I, I, I know a couple of women who are quite large women who are just love who just love themselves and 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 are very proud of their bodies and are just the most beautiful works of art I, there are two women who are in wheelchairs who have participated in these events who I'm very close to I mean have you ever looked at a naked woman in a wheelchair who's ever looked at a naked woman in the wheelchair but there she is being turned into the work of art that she already knows she is and people are stopping and people are looking because we're in the middle of Washington Square Park, we're in the middle of Times Square, we're in the middle of Bushwick, and we're being painted. So there you are looking and realizing, okay, that old man isn't gross, or that big woman is, is proud and beautiful, and there's you know people who are, in, who are young people too, you know, all kinds of, of, of uh, people involved. I mean, I, I had a wonderful experience my second year, I remember, riding the bus with a woman who told me, middle-aged woman, younger than me, but middle-aged woman, who, who told me she was doing this because she had just gotten through uh, a battle like, with breast cancer, which she won. And she was there to celebrate. I'm getting choked up thinking about it when she told me. You know, uh, she, her, new, her, new, her new relationship with her body, her new power over her own body. Every body has a story. Um, you mentioned Times Square. You also have been known for painting Andy in Times Square. Um, and you were arrested in 2011. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and you've gone sort of, you know, toe to toe with the NYPD fighting for your right to practice your art on the nude form in public places. Can you talk to me a little bit about the history of that? Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I came to body painting really from the art side. I mean, I was just painting objects when I started painting people. I thought it was really cool and the, the, the interaction and the, the transformation. And so I started doing it in public and uh, got pushed back right away. Uh, with the help of uh, lawyer Ron Kuby, uh, I found out that, um, that in New York City, full nudity is legal for purposes of a performance or a play or an exhibition. Now, a lot of people are very familiar that you can be topless, but they're not aware that you can basically be completely nude as long as you're doing something entertaining. Uh, or intending to be doing something entertaining. And so, you know, Ron uh, told me that everything I was doing was completely legal. I knew I had a top a lawyer, you know, had my back, told me there's a good chance I might get arrested. Uh, but I knew that I was in good hands, so I made a promise to myself that no matter how it went down, I wasn't going to stop doing something that I knew was legal. And so then I said, okay, let's just make an event where we just bring in tons of people. And then we started doing body painting day. Then we started doing it in different cities. We've done it with this this uh, summer. We're doing it in Switzerland. We've done it in Amsterdam and Berlin. Uh, and then two years ago, we started a nonprofit organization called Human Connection Arts, which deals a lot with body painting, but also deals with uh, art in general that you know could use to bring people together. One of the only stipulations, I believe, at a certain point uh, during your struggle with the NYPD was that you not paint in front of a Toys R Us. Was that right? Yes. It yeah. seems so specific to me. It was a long battle. I mean, at mm -hmm. first they were like saying you could paint, but you can only paint nude at night. So you have to wait till the sun goes down. So it was like this silly thing. And I, I really hated it because I abided by it for, for a season. And I hated it because it was like body painting after dark. And I didn't think I was doing anything salacious and anything that shouldn't be in the broad daylight, you know. And it was 
not something I think the kids uh, need to be protected from. For a while, I'm not sure if they're still there, there was a group of women in Times Square, along with the Elmos and the Cookie Monsters yeah. and the Naked Cowboy, uh, who went by the name Desnudas. Yeah. And they, uh, I believe, had bikini bottoms on, but their tops were just body painted. Do you see them as sort of allies in the struggle to recognize body painting, or do you think that they're doing sort of a separate thing from what you're doing? I, I guess the answer is neither. I, I think that in, on one level, they they've gotten so much attention that it's actually people confuse what I'm doing with what they're doing. They're, they're doing something which is using the body to try to get money from people through photos as tourists, which is we're not collecting money with our events. It's purely to uh, connect with people. On the same token, I think that it really spoke very much to people saying this is illegal, this should be stopped. So when that was all going down, I made sure to go out there and paint fully nude men and women. And people were very confused and people were very angry as they were tuning into this, like, this is this outrage. These people shouldn't be allowed to do this. And then I was like saying, well, actually, not only can you be topless, but you can be naked and it could be men. And it was sort of like people were looking at the cops that were just standing there just watching. And they were like, why are you allowing this? And they're like, it's legal. New York City, in my opinion, is a great city because of the fact that it, it makes provisions uh, for the, the nude form as something that's not salacious, as something that's not a bad thing in and of itself, if it's not being sexualized. And uh, I'm very appreciative of that. I'll tell you that yes. I did an event in Amsterdam, and one of the things that was striking to me was that was the first time I did this, and there was no fence. There was no sense of we need to protect ourselves from the crowd. Or that naked bodies are inherently sexualized. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the things that this event does it kind of breaks that down. I mean, I think the beginning of homophobia, the beginning of misogyny, the beginning of racism to a, lot of, uh, to a large extent comes from this total fear and paranoia that we have of the human body and of the naked body. I think it really stems with almost a form of self-hatred. Yeah. You know, once you hate yourself and you're ashamed of yourself and you look at yourself as, as the essence of being is, is a form of shame, well, then how are you going to reach out to other people? How are you going to, what's your relationship going to be with other people? It's going to be, it's going to be angry. It's going to be intolerant. It's going to be judgmental. And, and we see just tons of that. Right. Part of it is that people can't, people don't understand nudity in any other context but sex. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they, they're just so used to it being used that way. And so then there we are. And what you said is so true. You know, it's about learning to love your own body. Look at it. That person dancing in the street, loving themselves, being happy being proud, not hiding it, not trying to pretend he or she is something else. Uh, this, and and uh, you know, all, all of the other types of people, all, all there just feeling, so, feeling good about themselves. Well, I think the, the people who are walking by are saying, wow, that, that kind of makes me feel better about myself. Right, it's true that there aren't that many opportunities right. in our society for people to be around all types of different nude bodies. I would say, you know, you could go to a spa, but often spas draw a very specific type of person, same mm -hmm. as the gym. Um, so this does seem, at least in America, like a unique opportunity. Andy, do yeah. you have an idea about what you want to paint going in, or do you show up, look at the body, and then figure it out? Uh, I do my best to clear my mind uh, all the time. I just don't think about, I don't think about what it's going to be. I just sort of rely on my instincts. And so... I mean, the whole idea to me about art is doing it from a place that's just true. So I would, I just try to go into some kind of, uh, some kind of zone, play off the moment. And you do larger scale pieces that you call human canvases. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, 
Uh, they're really a lot of fun. Maybe describe them for people who sure. haven't seen them. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we get a large group of people, well, anywhere from two to like 20 people uh, lay on the ground or lay on, a, on the ground in a studio and their bodies form together, forming a human canvas. Uh, and then I do a spontaneous painting on the fly. I have no idea what I'm going to paint. Uh, even forming the bodies is like kind of artistic. Like you put your head in that person's armpit and it's just sort of just creating a, almost a sculpture in a sense. And then we photograph it from above. Uh, everybody has to paint because it's it's just so, you know, it's such a big project. And uh, When you say everybody has to paint, you have multiple artists working on it? Well, I, I do have some artists that assist, but all the models have to also paint as well. Like in other words, it's my, it's my art project. So what I'll do is I'll say to a person, paint this person's head yellow and paint yourself green and and then so and then paint you know thicken this line who's comfortable with this he'll start by sketching it out mm-hmm. on top he'll come up with a drawing while we're laying there he and i've seen this is right he, he starts with like nothing in his head and we all we're all laying there watching it all come together in his head and then he gets the the people he's brought in who are other artists and he gives them brushes and he gives them all the picture and he says okay draw and they draw the lines that are going to be, you know, the shape. The shape. They they cut out all the areas, and then they'll take the little colors and dab a little orange here, dab a little green there, dab a little blue there. So we know when we stand up because we're all none of us are a picture. We are all a piece of this puzzle. So when you stand up, all you've got is a line across your chest, a line across your leg, and but you know that when it all comes together, that bottom half of the thigh needs to be blue, and that left side of your chest needs to be orange. And so that's what he means. And then so we all, he's been marked. And then we all go around, we fill in the colors for each other and all the And is it selfies. abstract or like it comes together and it's like the face of a cat? Mm-hmm. All my stuff basically is a face in one way or other. Okay. Even the stuff that looks completely abstract, there's usually some, it, it like fluctuates between purely abstract and just faces. So it's just the way I express myself. And um, it's really cool. Uh, it's a great experience for everybody. I push people, I push all of us out of our comfort zone or push people to our, our limits physically, I realize that there's certain people that I'm like, okay, this one's going to have trouble staying in this position. And so I, it's, it's all done with time. It's, it's everything with the body painting, which is sort of really cool, is different than other kinds of art, is, is the element of time to it. You have to communicate a lot and you have to, whatever, it's just a time thing. So it's, it has a rhythm to it that is, um, and everybody's a part of it and everybody's energy is a part of it. And I sort of allow energies all to kind of flow through me, and I don't really know exactly what the inspiration of the art is. But the models get very involved in that commitment. Like, I know that what my first year, I got myself in a position, and he said a couple of times, you sure you're going to be okay in that position? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. A half an hour later, I realized, hmm, <laughs> this is going to start hurting more and sure. more. And I had uh, five and a half hours left to be in this position. But, you know, you find ways to, to relieve it. And sometimes the assistants come around. Like one guy was coming around last time. He kept grabbing my hand and pulling my arm to stretch it out. And then I put it back in place. And you, you, as you're seeing this thing come together, it's just such a... I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a little sketch down by the river, you know. This is a like an epic piece of art that is coming together. So you become very committed in doing what you have to do to keep it together, which for the models is holding that position and making sure that line, you know, that arm, you know, lines up with that person's, you know, left elbow so that you can make so that that line completes that eye or that tooth Mm -hmm. or whatever it is that, you know, the drawing you're trying to create. So you become very committed to your part, which is the, you know, the physical ability 
to to participate in an art where you are a human canvas. Exactly. That's what you committed to, and it becomes. And when it's done, there's always just this elation. He's always so stressed out during the whole process, and then at the end, he's like a kid in a candy store. He's like, "Wow, it came together. It always comes together." Sure. I think that art is um, an experience more than a product, and I think that people see art as a collectible and as a money thing. I think that the idea, I mean, I'm happy to have the images, but the way I see it is that the image is almost, you need the goal, but the journey is the only thing that really exists. Mm -hmm. So by creating this piece of art, you create this whole motivation and connection, and it's very intimate. And uh, I I think it's it's equal as far as I'm concerned to the to the process of doing these large-scale public events. And tell me about this event, Body Painting Day, on July 20th. Where can people go see it? Uh, we're going to be painting for four hours at Maria Hernandez Park in Bushwick. Uh, I was after doing it uh, for five years in New York City, the last two at Washington Square Park. I was very, very happy to uh, move this to what I consider to be the creative mecca of the city. And so Maria Hernandez Park, painting from 12 to 4. Then we're going to march through the public streets, take some pictures with all the uh, beautiful street art over there. And then, uh, and then maybe get a beer and uh, some some wings. Great. All right. Well, we're looking forward to that in Bushwick. Um, Andy and David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to go ape shit. Also, please review One Two BK on iTunes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 